Joe only drinks alcohol. So like this is really <laughs> hurt her. And it's that's why 13, she's like, now hang on a second. <laughs> it's 1321 for Joe. The water is dangerous. We need alcohol. <laughs> right. a pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small-town parish ministry and in PhD work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So Tom, do you go by Tom or Thomas? Uh, either one. I use Thomas when I write, but let's be real, I, I haven't published much, so that doesn't matter. Um, feel <laughs> Feel free to call me Tom. Okay, sounds good. Um, so we we all actually only know each other from I believe Twitter because I I my partner Ian was like, oh, you like Eucharist and like food justice stuff. You should get a book list from this person. And I was like, okay, great. Um, and then I was like, well, Ian, how do you know Tom? And Ian's like from Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I was, um, so I was in the stands at uh, General Conference 2019 um, in St. Louis with, uh, with my students um, from Boston University's uh, Methodist Polity class, and um, this polity hawk kept going to the microphone um, <laughs> and doing really good, important work, right, and one of my students always was asking me to like interpret what this person was doing. And uh, I started doing that and, and was like, I got to find this person on Twitter. Cause I bet they're a great follow. And <laughs> sure enough, it was Ian. Um, and so, yeah, that's how that all started was in the chaos of uh, a former football stadium. Um, right. And now we're here. And now we're here when, and we all got out before the monster trucks rolled in. Right. <laughs> right. Well, before, before trucks engineered to be monster trucks rolled in, I think we have plenty of our own monster trucks ah, that's fair. at that rally. Um, so listeners this week, we have another guest on the podcast. Uh, it is Thomas Herbins Webster, and we're going to use your full name because you are a known person on the internet. Usually here on What the Hell is a Pastor, we keep things a little more anonymous so we can talk a little more freely. But I assume that you are you are free from the confines of anonymity because of church. But I can take out your last name if that's not true. No, go ahead and keep it in there. I, I um, Anonymity does not really suit me. <laughs> Sounds good. Um and so as, as you just heard, we all, we all met on Twitter. And so we are we're talking for the first time, but uh, I think we're gonna have a really great conversation about um, the Eucharist, about communion, about food justice, about, you know, probably just Methodism in general from what I'm hearing just now. Um, so Tom, do you wanna introduce yourself in, uh, in as much detail as you think is pertinent for the podcast? Um, yeah, sure. I am Tom Hermans Webster. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. I am an elder in the North Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church. Uh, I am a PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study under Brian Stone and Mary Elizabeth Moore, and am working on a process theology of Holy Communion for planetary dining. Um, so looking at food justice and ecological justice through the lens of process theology and sacramental theology. I love that. I am, I'm going to jump off right away uh, by saying that like, we have a lot of thoughts about process theology. We know very little <laughs> about process <laughs> theology. 
so why why is process the route that you needed to go for or chose to go for in order to to do the work you're doing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the really practical answer is that I think uh, Norman Pittenger, who's the main kind of interlocutor for my dissertation, Norman Pittenger was a process theologian in the uh, middle of the 20th century, uh, the generation before John Cobb and Schubert Ogden. And um, I was introduced to him because both of my parents who were Methodist clergy uh, had him on their shelves from courses in seminary. And I just read him specifically his book, Life is Eucharist, um, when I was in high school and was just captivated by this faithful discussion about the importance of Holy Communion for, for building the Christian life and constructing the Christian life in a way that truly binds us together as church. Um, and I didn't learn until 10 years later that he was a process theologian. Um, so my my practical answer for the dissertation is that he's a process theologian, so it's important that I do this work in process theology. Uh, the bigger answer is that I came to process theology when I was an undergraduate. I was introduced to it by a philosophy professor of mine um, at Birmingham Southern College, the Methodist school in, in North Alabama, and I found it extremely attractive because through the people uh, I read, Catherine Keller, Monica Coleman, Schubert Ogden, um, Norman Pittenger, uh, there was an affinity with Wesleyan thinking that I immediately uh, picked up that began with the central affirmation that God is love. And what does this mean? This means that God is relationship that in which none greater can be conceived, to use the, the Anselmian phrase. Um, but Charles Hartshorn developed that in a very uh, important way to critique mistakes uh, that we've made in the Christian tradition about power that um, have placed coercion at the, the top of God's abilities instead of love at the top of God's abilities. And John Wesley makes very similar uh, statements in his sermons and in his journals, uh, his journal entries. And so I, I just saw it as this really practical way of living into my faith as a Wesleyan, living into what I had been taught as a child, what I had experienced in confirmation, um, and what I felt called to be doing. Um, I went to Perkins School of Theology for my MDiv and dove more deeply there. Uh, Drs. Theodore Walker Jr. and Karen Baker Fletcher really opened me up to um, the, the breadth of process thinking and process theology. Uh, it was under Dr. Baker Fletcher that I first encountered the intersections of process thought and womanism. And uh, under, under Dr. Walker that I became convinced that process theology has to be attentive to liberation in order for it to be viable at all. Um, and his work in, in bringing Black Atlantic thought into um, neoclassical theology, as he calls it, but also in using neoclassical theology to advance Black Atlantic thought. So it's a very long answer to why I think process has to, has to be a part of my life, not just my dissertation project. I love that though. That's um, that uses all of the words that we like to use. Um, so That's usually, <laughs> uh, nice. I, and I have to be honest, most of my experience with uh, people who are talking about process theology is people who have just discovered it in seminary and are very proud of knowing it. <laughs> so right, I've uh, been that person. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I should have more grace for those people. Um, but hearing hearing the connections to um, Wesleyanism and and hearing like just how how it must be grounded in things that aren't just old white men talking uh, and hearing the thinkers that you're working with, like this makes me happy. This fulfills my soul. So I feel good about it. I saw Ethan was nodding a lot as you were kind of going through the list of things. Ethan, do you want to jump in with anything? Yeah, I uh, um, so I'm a I'm a PhD student at the University of Virginia, and uh, um, 
there's not a ton of process people in the religion department and doing in Christian theology at the religion department. And I, and I uh, like to wave at process people as I cross the street. I don't, I don't like to do process theology. And I mean that with, with a lot of love, but I really, I really appreciated um, your uh, uh, sighting of Karen Baker Fletcher, because she is one that she's a process thinker that I really like. Um, and, and Catherine Keller. I just read uh, Cloud of the Impossible for a the for the first time for a theology of culture class that I and I really I really enjoyed that too. Um, yeah, I think so. I guess a question I have. This is a very nerdy theology question, but um, a question I have is is how um, <laughs> how 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 deeply do you go into process? So I'm not. What I guess what my question is is like. To me, there's like a there's like a soft process theology that I consider to be maybe a little more um, maybe a little more fluid, where where it's sort of employed kind of like a scalpel, uh, not as like a blunt instrument. And then there's sort of the the hard process theology that that is like no, no, you got to take the whole system or you leave it. Uh, can I get? I, Purely out of curiosity, no judgment one way or the other. Where do you fall in that? That's that's a really important question, actually, methodologically. I think um, so. Thank you for it. One other thing, and I'll actually use Dr. Baker Fletcher for this for this answer. Um, one of the things she taught me, uh, and that has stuck with me, that I've picked up also in Pittenger's work, that has been really important for me there, um, is that. Christian process theology has to begin with the revelation and enactment of cosmic love that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. And that means that there are times when Christian tradition and Christian theological reflection and theological reflection that grows specifically out of one metaphysical system may come into to, uh, contrast with each other. And, and at those moments, I err on the side of, of uh, Whitehead's aesthetic commitments more maybe than his metaphysical commitments, that when we experience contrast, um, that's an opportunity to look for growth and to look for um, chances to learn from the contrasting experiences. Um, when I was really excited about my, my newfound love of process theology in seminary, as Joe, uh, characterized it, uh, I definitely was a blunt instrument user. Um, and I think one of the things that I realized, um, in gleefully hacking away at um, my own experience of faith, but also at other people's experiences of faith, was uh, that one, that wasn't ethical, and two, um, that wasn't actually accurate to what was being taught or written or understood by so many open theologians, open theists, relational theologians, process theologians, neoclassical theologians, that these critiques that this broad umbrella of open relational and process theology, um, these critiques that we make, they land, I think, quite well, not because they're these knockdown drop, like, like just huge arguments that can just lop off a problem and be done with it. They land because they identify something about the dis-ease that we find ourselves in, in this world where we know that we're related to other people and other creatures. We feel it deep in our experience. We feel this relationship, um, these many relationships, and yet we have societally constructed, white male societally constructed mainly, um, notions of individual distance from one another that has to be maintained. And that dis-ease 
feels jarring and the penetrating critiques that I find most meaningful from process theologians and, and relational theologians and open theists, the penetrating critiques I find most meaningful are those that identify these particular places of disease that stem from misinterpretations of God that have been made by Christian thinkers down the centuries that have not begun with the central tenet that God is love. So it's an evolution for me. Um, I was a blunt instrument user for a long time until I realized the beauty of, and the grace, quite frankly, of um, not hurting other people with your theology. I love that. Um, I, that, that might be a phrase that I like write and put on a sticky note somewhere for people to see. <laughs> goodness knows we all do it. Um, you have been using the word open, uh, open theology, open thinkers. What is, uh, that is not a term I'm familiar with. What is that? Yeah. So um, open theism is a, a cousin of process and relational theism. Uh, Greg Boyd may be the most well-known open theist right now. Um, in fact, there's a great podcast episode of Homebrew Christianity where Trip Fuller and Greg Boyd go back and forth between process and, and open theism. Um, I wondered how long it was going to take before we were going to bring in homebrew Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, talking talk process theology, Trip's going to come up at some point, right? Um, but open theism is more committed to... Um, in my experience of, of open theism, it's more committed to the unknownness and the unknowability of the future for even God um, to the point that future is open. That's where the, the name open comes from. The future is open for God also. What does that then mean for all of these other uh, theological insights and theological tenets. Um, one of the untested theories that I have, and uh, I'm risking a lot by just tossing this one out here, but here we go. One of the untested theories I have is that a lot of process and relational thinkers are Wesleyans. Um, that's mm. not untested. That's, that's like actually documented. But uh, a lot of open thinkers tend to come from Calvinist and Baptist backgrounds and, and non-denominational backgrounds that are really Baptist backgrounds. Um, and I don't know why that's the case, but a number of people I know and a number of students I've had who find open theism very attractive have been brought up in Calvinist and Baptist uh, settings. And, um, there's something about there's something about sovereignty and uh, time that appeals to them in the open theist conversations, and a lot of Wesleyans I know who are attracted to process and relational thinking, it's from that Wesley quote: "The darling attribute of God is love." You know, um, it's from the hymn, thy nature and thy name is love. It's, it's baked into Wesleyan theological DNA that you then read John Cobb and you go, well, of course, like, hmm. yeah, Wesley did say that. I mean, John Cobb has an entire book that's uh, basically reading Wesley as a process theologian. And this is how you do it um, or how you can do it, how he does it. And so that's open theism. It's more committed to, to the openness of the future uh, and then teasing out those, um, teasing out those implications. Whereas relational theism has, uh, Tom Ord is a great example. Karen Baker Fletcher, I think is also a great example of relational theism. Uh, that there's a very um, clear commitment to relationality that doesn't make some of the metaphysical claims that process theologians and neoclassical theologians like Hartshorn um, and Walker and uh, Pittenger and Cobb and Keller have made. Um, yeah, but as we remind each other, it's 
it's the American Academy of Religion is happening right now virtually. And uh, as we remind each other every time, the open relational theology group or unit or whatever we're called is gathered for papers and panels. Um, we're very, very close cousins. Mm. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, in hearing you talk about this, I am astounded that I did not end up uh, in this kind of open open area because uh, I, I grew up Methodist, but with um, a little bit extra Baptist stuff thrown in there. I worked at a summer camp that was non-denominational, which again, we all know means Baptist. Um, and I really, really struggled with um, the determination and predestination stuff. And so I, I tend to, um, I also have a degree in science and religion. And so when I talk about like how the universe functions, I talk about the openness of the universe because of quantum uncertainty. And so like this all, this all dovetails really in together. And I just haven't sat down to like find a system that, that fits it. But I also think that like Gregory of Nyssa found me first. And so I am, I tend to just want to, want to find something in classical theology before I jump to something new, but this all sounds really great and exciting. Um, I think that we have gone, we have gone into the weeds for most of our listeners, because <laughs> um, we do a lot more practical, uh, not This should be a good mini show. This would be a good mini show. It was. Like okay. the, the mini the show should just be, uh, why can everybody agree that Gregory of Nyssa is incredible? No matter, <laughs> no matter, no matter where you are on the theological spectrum, even Catherine Keller, that's my favorite part of Cloud of the Impossible, <laughs> is Catherine, it's Catherine Keller, and so she's, you know super process all the time but she spends four pages in that book on Gregory of Nyssa and she goes but we have to admit this guy's awesome and I'm like yeah he's incredible he's Gregory right, of Nyssa. Right. Um, and we can't do that because we've already done multiple episodes on it <laughs> uh, we can't just be a Gregory of Nyssa fan podcast um, so I, let's let but let's step back from all of that I I learned a lot I feel great about it I hope somebody else listens to it and learns a lot too um can you explain what your PhD project is for somebody who has only received communion like once a quarter and goes to church maybe twice a month yeah um the ways that food is consumed uh, around the planet, but especially in what has been called the Western diet, really since uh, World War II. The ways that food is consumed in the Western diet are killing the planet and are contributing to, um, to our collective death as a species and um, to the, the deaths of so many species. Christianity is centered around eating. It's centered around a meal. Even mm -hmm. if it's only once a quarter, we have this bold claim that we experience Jesus by eating and drinking something. Even if that's a transubstantiate claim in Roman Catholicism or, or a purely memorialist claim in an Anabaptist tradition, we claim that we experience Jesus when we eat. And I uh, am genuinely curious if the ways that we eat Jesus are different than the ways that we eat the rest of the time. And if we encounter salvation, if we encounter one another, if we encounter God, in this loving and including and, and life-giving way in one meal, we should also work to encounter God and each other and, and salvation in a life-giving way in every other meal. Okay, okay. I am here for all of that. I know I keep on saying that, but I'm just very, very excited. Um, so I... You know, I don't know that we've talked too much about communion on the podcast. Um, I So I'm a licensed local pastor. I get to do communion at uh, the two churches that I'm at. Um, but right now we are meeting online because of COVID. And uh, right now I'm uh, angry at one of my churches because <laughs> they're kind of kind of pushing me toward the door. Um, so for people, well, for anybody, what's your understanding of 
of communion of the Eucharist. Like there, there are so many different ways that, that Christians understand it. Um, do you have a primary understanding that you're working with? Do you have one that you like the best that you think leads most to, um, helping us re-understand all of our other meals? Yes, I do. Uh, I think that Holy Communion reveals and enacts the interconnectedness of the cosmos within the life of God. And that um, needs to be teased out. The meal reveals to us things we already feel and we already know, that we're connected to one another, that we're connected to bread, that we're connected to grapes and wheat and yeast and dirt and water and star stuff. Uh, it also reveals that we're connected to hungry people who we ignore on our way into the church building to receive communion. It also reveals to us that we are connected to people who we've never met who also partake in this meal. It reveals to us that we're connected to our ancestors who received, and it reveals to us that we have a responsibility to live in such a way that we will become ancestors for people who uh, can also experience the love and the salvation that the meal reveals. The meal enacts community. It enacts a binding, a coming together of persons um, into a people, uh, as, as scripture reminds us, God calls a people, um, and, and community is enacted in this meal, even if it's just like a little bit of, uh, King's Hawaiian bread and Welch's grape juice, uh, communion enacts this, this binding together, this coming together and it enacts it in a very particular way because it enacts it in a way that says we come together to show the world who Jesus was and is and what Jesus was about. And what Jesus was about was what God is about, right? That's, that's um, letting the oppressed go free, letting the prisoner go free. That's loosing chains. That's... Um, uh, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. That's jubilee for the crops as well as for the plates. Um, so the community that's enacted is not just like your local Elks Club, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a very particular community because it's a community that that is challenged to participate in the reign of God. That's what I think we mean when we pray "Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and that's what I think communion does what it, it, when it enacts. It enacts the interconnectedness of the cosmos. The same way that I said it reveals that we're connected to each other and to grapes and wheat and water. It enacts that because it makes us actually take in, right? We actually ingest and and include in ourselves star stuff. Um, and uh, it enacts the interconnectedness of the cosmos within the life of God. We claim that in this meal, we come together to consciously live aware that we are in God. The, the Pauline phrase, life in Christ here, right? That, that what it means to be Christian is to be part of a body that is active, that is living, that is an organism, that is growing, uh, that makes mistakes, but that can confess those sins, uh, that, that can experience repentance and the grace of forgiveness. Um, that's what it means to live life in God. And it also means, and this is where some of my process thinking comes in, it also means that we live a creative life, that life in God is necessarily a life of creativity and transformation. It's, it's not just, um, it's not just a happy go lucky. Yay. We've made it. We're done. The mm -hmm. life that we get to live in God is a life uh, 
that says there is an injustice going on down the street from where our church happens. And in order for us to come together as the body of Christ next week, we have to work to make sure that that injustice experiences the kingdom of God. And that's that's a, a kingdom in which there will be no more tears, no more crying, former things have passed away where God does new things. And we get to be a part of that. Oh, yes. Here for all this. Again, I need to, I need to stop. Uh, and, and I see Ethan laughing at me, but like, this is, this is all the kind of stuff when I talk about communion and write about communion and preach about communion and explain communion, this is all the kind of stuff that I'm trying to convey to my congregation. Um, I don't really know how much it gets through. <laughs> um, so I want to, I have 50 million questions. So Ethan, if you have a question, you're gonna have to jump in, but I'm gonna start first. <laughs> Let's talk about elements. Uh, Cause you mentioned uh, King's Hawaiian bread. Uh, and right now we're <laughs> uh, the little cuppy cups uh, with the shots of Jesus and the little wafers for, um, for COVID tide. So uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts about um, the ways in which the elements we use um, remind us of this first meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, which is of course, like in Jewish tradition, but like remind us of the, the last supper. Um, and also like, I have a lot of thoughts about um, having them be something that has a flavor of the community as well. Like we do a lot of sourdough and grape juice uh, just cause we're up in the mountains and, and we have people who will bake it for us as well. Um, but then also like as Methodists, we have, we made grape juice just so we could have uh, a non-alcoholic element uh, to be there for our, uh, our siblings who struggle with alcoholism. So what, well, what do you think about elements? How much of the, um, how much of what we eat and what we drink during communion, during the communion liturgy in church, uh, how, how does that factor into your thinking? It factors in in a ton of ways. I think it, it may actually have been the catalyst for this project in, hmm. in um, unknown ways, in ways I've not like gone back through and, and kind of excavated. Um, one of one of the things I'm utterly convinced of, and this is uh, why I think you could point me out as the Methodist uh, from any kind of room of Christians, like, yep, that's him, that's the one, um, <laughs> is we have to have a non-alcoholic fruit of the vine, juice of the fruit of the vine available. Um, I think we were correct when we made that decision. Um, okay. And the reason is because if our first rule as a society is to do no harm, mm -hmm. then, then I don't know if we can say that the blood of Christ is something that can contribute to harming um, one, of, one of our family. Um, that doesn't mean that wine can't be available. I've, I've been in plenty of services and I've presided over services that have had a cup of wine and a cup of uh, Welch's. Um, but I think that may be my most like stridently held opinion about the elements and it's rooted in our first rule as a society. Um, my thinking about bread is- Can I pause you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So do you think that the reason that it took us as Christians so long to have a non-alcoholic option uh, is because alcohol didn't really become something as harmful for people until um, more modern times where the alcohol got stronger, where alcoholism became more of a widespread problem, uh, like as it did in the States when there was just like a flood of molasses to make this like really hard whiskey. Like, do you think it's, um, do you think that we developed a need for a non-alcoholic option because of alcoholism? Or do you think it just took us this long as the church to recognize, hey, some people shouldn't have alcohol? I don't know. That's a great question. I want to lean, I want to lean toward if I can just like talk without any kind of 
data to back me up, which you know makes yeah. me supremely uncomfortable as like someone writing a dissertation. That's yeah. this is our that's our motto of this podcast: um, <laughs> talking without any data. Twenty-five people <laughs> listen to us, and like one of them is my mom. Right? We're fine. <laughs> Great. We're fine. Um, I can I have a third option? Can the can the third yeah. option be that that maybe we listen to women? Ooh, I like who, this option the best. You're right. Had, I just I wonder. So Francis Willard and and the influence of Methodist women on the temperance movement um, can cannot be exhausted in as mm-hmm. far as research capacity goes. I know Chris Evans at Boston University is working on a, a great book about Francis Willard right now. Um, but I wonder if I wonder if there's something to a a correlation between the rise of the influence of women in American Methodism and this turn um, in church practice and ritual practice. Um, And my thinking here is that we've got Methodist women involved in the temperance movement. We've got Methodist women involved in the temperance movement for all sorts of different reasons. Um, Everything from you know, just demon rum to, to making the connections that Wesley made between um, exploitation and alcohol production and uh, worker exploitation and alcohol production. And then also the symptomatic problems of alcoholism. So there are all sorts of different reasons that women get involved in the temperance movement um, and men too, but, but we've got all these Methodist women. We've also got all these Methodist women who are doing this at the same time that laity are getting to to speak in general conference settings and annual conference settings we've got women doing this at the same time that women are becoming more recognized as exhorters and as as speakers in front of congregations of people we've also got this happening at the same time that we're moving away from a society model society class band model and into Sunday school um, models that have a new way of teaching Christians um, of all ages, but especially a new way of relating between the, the domestic spheres and the public education spheres that are starting to rise and, and the, the women's work there um, to, to build on a very old, and, and bad trope, but the women's work of teaching the children. Um, so I wonder if all of that's connected somehow mm-hmm. that, that the, the rising role of women in, in the Methodist movement in this country and the expression of that role in the temperance movement. I wonder if they're all connected somehow. I like that a lot. Um... If I had my way, we'd talk about women in Methodism for the mini-sode, but we'll see if that's the topic that we want to get into. Um, Ethan, did you have something you want to jump in with before before we travel on to the bread? No, I think this is all very interesting, and I'm happy to listen. Okay. So, so tell us more of your thoughts about the bread, Tom, because I have to admit I was raised on King's Hawaiian, and when it's not that, I'm a little sad on the inside. So my younger brother, when we were uh, growing up, both of my parents are elders, and I would go to one church um, and my brother would go to the other church on a Sunday and we'd flop the next week. And so we rarely were at church together um, growing up, but we had the same church communities. And um, I remember one Sunday, he was probably elementary age. Um, I remember one Sunday him coming home and we didn't have any leftover communion bread from my dad's congregation. He had been with my mom that day. And he, he said, um, but where's the bread? I love it when Jesus is Hawaiian. And, um, I wonder if I've been thinking about that, like in the back of my head without me knowing for like 20 years leading up to this dissertation, because I, one of the big questions I have is uh, about elements. I wonder if it's less important if it's, um, coconut or or tortilla corn tortilla or um you know perfect 
Eurasian red winter wheat. Um, and I wonder if it's more important that it's healthfully raised and grown and gotten to the table. Um, I think it makes perfectly good sense historically why why the bread is the bread that uh, the 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 way of eating grain that we got as um, a religious tradition um, that makes sense. But it also makes sense. I went to seminary in Texas. It also makes sense that I received communion three times a week when I was in seminary, twice a week when I was in seminary, and at least one of those every single time was corn tortilla as my bread, hmm. because culturally that made sense for the people celebrating the sacrament, um, because that was that was bread. Um, and it certainly served that function. Um, so, and, and then I've received communion also at, at BU. I had a colleague who, um, uh, I had a colleague who is um, Samoan, if I remember correctly, and he celebrated communion uh, with us uh, one day, and it was it was coconut, not like coconut bread, like like coconut, and he gave oh. the cultural significance of you know, the the bread of life discourse from John six for his growing up and his community and his experience of, of what bread of life is, is coconut. And so I've, I've begun to think more on how the creatures who communicate God's grace and love to us are raised and gotten to us than on necessarily which creatures are the ones we eat in communion okay yeah i am i'm here for all that um i'm i i have a lot of thoughts right now about um i like i work with the community garden here uh, in the town that i live in and um i've been growing i've been trying to like have a garden of my own but there are a lot of people around me who are um doing their best to remove their dependence on uh, grocery stores in terms of like what we eat and what we do. Uh, and so I would love to get more into that, but I don't have any good formed questions on that. So Ethan, what do you got? Uh, that was going to be actually a similar question I had. Um, before I went back to school, I served a, a, a church as a licensed local pastor in central Pennsylvania. And, and ultimately, the only option, you know, in, in terms of food is Walmart. And, and so that's kind of, you know, I'm wondering what, this is sort of a practical question. This is sort of a, a question. This is absolutely a question connected to, you know, your, your point of being mindful of the, the way in which these creatures, you know, wheat or, or anything is, is healthily raised or, or whatever, you know, for, for communion. But I wonder how, how that plays out in communities that are um, really unable to access resources like that. Not to say that, you know, I, I certainly, I, I think that, that you, what you're saying is correct. And I think that that means a lot and, and, is, and, and is deeply important to good theologies of communion and good practices of communion. But I do know that like, even, even a creation of a community garden or, or stuff like that is rooted in uh, at least some form of ge of geographical privilege or some form of 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 being able to access resources of land you know in order to do that and so I just I wonder I wonder how how we navigate that you know when when our food is so um, connected to economics which is always politicized and is always connected yeah. to other layers of, of sin and other layers of power and other layers of things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of, um, of food deserts too, in like inner right. city areas where Absolutely. there 
unless you're making a rooftop garden, like there's, and I don't know, I have never raised wheat, so I would have no idea how to do this. Um, so like, would you celebrate communion with a Twinkie? Cause that's bread that you're going to have more often. Or do you like take that, that moment to be a prophetic witness of like, God desires better for our bodies than what is often um, available to us. And then just have that be the thing that kind of refills us on our, on our drive to make sure that everybody has the food that they need to, to treat their bodies well. Like, do we, when we do communion, offer a prophetic sign of it's better than uh, the chips that you can get at the bodega? These are great questions. Um, so one of the really practical things that uh, I have learned from Leah Pinneman, who uh, her book, uh, Farming While Black, is absolutely brilliant. Oh, uh, yeah. I recommend it wholeheartedly. Um, she's uh, the founder of Soulfire Farms in upstate New York. And mm-hmm, one of the mm-hmm. things that's really practical that I've learned from her is that um, an easier way for folks to enter into these questions of justice regarding economics and access uh, to good food and good for you food is uh, to understand that food deserts are not deserts, that it's food apartheid, that it's an Mm. active policy decision to discriminate against particular communities based on certain like certain defining characteristics of that community. Um, that deserts are naturally occurring. They're vibrant ecosystems. Um, that food apartheid, however, is an economic choice that can, that societies make um, against the well-being of communities within the, those societies. That's a super theoretical observation. On the one hand, right. On the other hand, I think what that does for local congregations is it refocuses their um, their attention, or it can it can refocus their attention to say, okay, if this is not that like we live in a desert, but that we live under apartheid. What do we need to do? What capacities do we have within us as a community to live the abundant life that Christ promised? Um, In communities where Walmart is the only option for that that purchase, um, the, the the cries of, of anti-Walmart all the time boycott them at all costs because the Waltons um, treat their, their laborers poorly because this is a, a huge ecological imp- imprint that is not needed um, for the health of the world. Those often fall very flat and unhelpful. I think you're exactly right. And I think one of the things that that understanding it as food apartheid can do is it can then challenge the community to say, okay, what do we have as a community and what do we need to do as a community to with in the system we're forced to live in to respond in a way that brings life and life abundant. And if that means going to Walmart, because that's where the food is, that means going to Walmart and collectively purchasing items that individuals may not be able to afford because they're on the organic aisle or, uh, or whatever, which depending on where you're getting that food, I mean, organic is not necessarily better anyway. Um, but understanding it, I think under food apartheid, um, just reframes that to where the community can then ask those very practical questions that are very contextually important. Because you're right too, access to land is critically important here. Um, 
sometimes there, there are members of congregations who the only land that they own may be the land that the church is sitting on. Um, what, what can the church then do? How can church then happen in a way that people feel connected to land and feel connected to water and feel connected to creatures who, who come from land like us? Um, if the church is the only land that, that its congregants have unrestricted access to. Um, that may be a question that can be asked. Um, I know a number of churches that do community gardens, but that also assumes a particular set of, of resources and, mm -hmm. and tools, uh, literally and figuratively tools. Um, and so I think though there's no single prescriptive answer I can give on it because of all those contextual questions that get answered in the process of saying, hey, we're under a system. How do we respond to the system? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and like, uh, as as my mom likes to say, like, uh, you know, I used to like demo my notes a lot at uh, going to Walmart because I had the ability to go other places <laughs> beyond Walmart. And when I, when she was, she was buying sheets or something, and I'm like, you went to Walmart for sheets. And she's like, well, you know, when the poor people can afford something other than this, then I will go there. But as of right now, this is what we got. Um, and I think that there's, I, I, what I, what I would want to play with to do this, um, like it, if I had a congregation who was willing to, to follow me <laughs> in these things, uh, is I would want to play with both finding the holiness in, um, in our everyday bread, in what we have here, even though it's not um, not good in the ways that we we want it to be, um, but to like to find holiness here, and then also to look into look into the future and say, but why? Like, what do our bodies need? Like, what restores our connection? All this kind of stuff. Like, I think I think there's space to do both. Though you were the person writing the PhD on it, so tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> No, you know, I think you're exactly right. Um, that, and not just that there is space to do both, but there has to be space to do both. This is one of the, the mm -hmm. problems that I think um, if we can get uh, into to Methodist technical land uh, with this answer, this is one of the problems that I've seen with some of the responses to the general conference decision of, well, we're just gonna withhold our, our monies um, communities who often can withhold their monies or communities who can often say, well, why would you go to Walmart to get your sheets? Um, are the same communities who generally don't understand how important connectional giving is and mutual mm -hmm. aid is for life. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my professors at, at Perkins, he's at Vanderbilt now. Um, one of my professors at Perkins, Jörg Rieger, um, used to talk about Walmart all the time um, and, and uh, was very anti-Walmart. And yet, you know where he was like twice a month? He was in a Walmart parking lot mm -hmm. um, working with workers at Walmart. And and uh, working to help organize labor and help organize workers at Walmart. Um, because he said, you know, if it's, if it's all about just yelling and screaming for, for the sake of my feeling better, then I would never step foot on their, on Walmart property. But if it's for actual liberation from forces of evil, if it's actually living into our baptismal vows to, to combat evil in whatever form they present themselves, then I need to go to those places. Um, Hal Racinos would put it this way. If you're Christian, then you look up and you see your Savior on the cross and you recognize that your Savior is asking you to go to the places where the, the crucified are being crucified. Mm. Um. realizing that 
there are so many communities and so many congregations that um, that a place like Walmart is the only place. Um, that means recognizing that that's an that's a place where crucifixion is happening on a regular basis, not mm-hmm. to be avoided, but to to go into and to to be part of God's work for resurrection. That may not ever look like you know burning the Walmart down, um, but it may look like a cashier or four cashiers or stock boy um, or the greeter realizing that they're valued for being humans and for being like, you know, the children of God that we've been created to be instead of valued for their production and, and their, their labor output. Um, And that can be a way that church can participate, even if it still has to purchase um, these goods. And at the same time, figuring out ways for resilience and resistance. Monica White uh, has a book called Freedom Farmers, uh, where she looks at uh, the farms that have, the uh, farms and co-ops that have been part of uh, Black resistance um, in the 20th century. Uh, and like Fannie Lou Hamer um, is a, one of her chapters. Uh, and the freedom uh, co-op in, in Ruleville, Miss, Ruleville, Mississippi. Uh, and one of the things that, that White talks about there is that resistance and acts of resistance are cannot be only like these negative deconstructive things, um, deconstructive events. There has to be the witness that that uh, black farmers uh, have given is that there has to be constructive work toward and realization of abundant life for the community. That an act of resistance is one thing uh, that is important and is needed, but it can never contribute to the realizing of a more just world if it's just tearing things down the whole time. And I, I think, you know, I think Ethan, the the question about the congregation and the community uh, like that, that finding opportunities that recognize even within these systems, finding opportunities to build, finding opportunities to construct, what gifts do these communities have that they, these congregations have they can offer to their broader community um, that that is what helps us take steps toward the reign of God and in, in our eating and in our food and in our relationship with other creatures uh, I'm not gonna say I love that this time uh, <laughs> do you though i mean i just want to make sure that i'm like still getting my marks I, yeah I, I like it i like it a lot i i don't mean i'm sorry joe you've been saying you love it a lot so i'm gonna i'm going to to jump in um if that's okay please please don't yeah no let me just from a uh programming standpoint as we are coming at an hour so whatever whatever you're gonna say here ethan is gonna be uh either the last question or the thing that kind of rounds us out before we go into the minisode so yes ma'am make it count i will i will do my best (laughs) uh what i really appreciate about that uh tom is um you were able to kind of articulate in your theology of the eucharist in which you say hey you know, the, the, the elements, the, the things of the earth that we use to, you know, that, that God uses and that God dwells within to communicate to, to all of us uh, should be treated with the same love that God treats us is a really, uh, I, I see, I always try to see it in terms of uh, 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 how, how can we mobilize a church for, for good things. And I always and I see that as a really um, interesting and 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 perhaps really viable way to mobilize a church to to go, 
yeah, that's right. Like we we should um, do work to make sure that um, our community has access to good things, good for us food and well um, well raised food. You know that why? Well, it's simple. It's so that we can have communion well. You know why? It, it's simple because this is how we we this is a way in which we can be the church well. You know, and I, I think that a lot of churches, particularly a lot of white folks in churches, you know, but but I think a lot of churches in this country in general um, are, are often unaware of the ways that that let me try it another way. What I hear a lot is, you know, the church has their thing and then there's some other stuff. Um, and so pastor, as long as you stick to preaching about church stuff, we're good. Or, hey, as long as we keep doing church stuff, we're good. This rest of the stuff, it's not as important. But I think that that betrays or or demonstrates that church folks are not often um, encouraged to think about the ways in which church stuff is world stuff, that, that church stuff is enfolded in world stuff, unfolds in world stuff. And, and uh, even though that's something that I think everybody kind of knows, it's not something that, that, that I think a lot of us are trained to see as being evident all the time. And, and I think that, and so I think that that causes um, some church folks when they hear somebody say, hey, as a Christian, you really should be uh, mindful of local politics. Hey, as a Christian, you really should be mindful of um, what what other part people in the community uh, are struggling with. All of that is true, but I think that sometimes folks are led to believe that that's sort of an, an extra thing, that that's, that's uh, something that could be a part of church, but doesn't have to be a part of church. I think that the way you've articulated, you know, a theology of Eucharist um, uh, demonstrates how, oh, no, churchy things, even like communion, are enfolded into all of this stuff that we've been sort of trained to see as extra or outside of the church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so own that, embrace that. Uh, so that we can do church stuff well, or church, you know, the church stuff in, in, in a really correct and good and honoring way to our cre- to our fellow creatures and to our Creator. Um, I don't. I were I still preaching, I'd give that a shot. <laughs> I'm not right now, um, but but I'd be fascinated to see how how that you know if if that were to be hammered home in churches, how that would reorient the way, um, you know, churches kind of see the, 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 the things happening around them by saying, you know, no, the, the stuff that you are doing as a church uh, is not insulated from the stuff outside of it. That's, that's my biggest takeaway mm-hmm. of, uh, of what you said today. Well, thank you. That's that's what I was hoping would be a takeaway. Uh, I want to I want to add to it if I can, just real briefly. For me, this is one of the places where process thinking is really instrumental um, in in articulating the depth at which church stuff and world stuff are entangled and enfolded. I like that enfolded into one another. Um, you don't have to be a process theologian to make those moves. In fact, I know, I know for a fact that Paul was not a process theologian. And uh, he, he makes that move, I think, when he calls us a body. Um, when, when we talk about the church as a body, that's, that's not um, some powerless metaphor uh that's just a nice pretty picture we can put up on uh on our walls it is i think a very powerful challenge for us to recognize how bodies work in the world around us 
not just human bodies, but all sorts of different bodies. And one of the things that we know is that bodies interact with one another and are impacted by one another's health. That when a healthy body can, can um, be in relationship with others, health continues. When, when sick bodies are in relationship with each other, sickness continues. This is one of the things that I find beautiful about Wesleyan and Methodist understandings of salvation is, is this healing and therapeutic um, understanding of, of salvation and sanctification that we've inherited um, from uh, Wesley's reading of, of the Orthodox fathers and mothers. Um, and we're certainly not alone in thinking about salvation this way. But I want to offer that that I think the reason we think about salvation this way is because of exactly what you said. We recognize that, that we're a body, that we're part of larger uh, social organisms and health matters. Um, we're part of societies and communities where we see, uh, we see health impacting all of this and our way of talking about that as in Christed people uh, is, is in salvation language. Um, but that salvation language is very, very worldly. It's, it's, it's implications for how the world happens around us and with us um, are tremendous. Um, I am, and I'll, I'll end with this, I am a huge Chicago Cubs fan. Um, on on uh, uh, that beautiful, beautiful night in November of 2016, I wept uh, at, uh, at a throw from third base to first base to end, end the curse. Um, one of the things that was great that entire season, though, was there was a saying, was, um, uh, he goes, we go. The, the leadoff batter that season um, statistically, if he was having a good game, the entire team had a good game. It was, it was like textbook and it became like the battle cry. He goes, we go. And I wonder if thinking about the church in this kind of organism kind of way, this, this body who interacts with bodies, um, if that is a, a helpful way for exactly what you talked about, um, with, getting parishioners on board with this as work, as living, as integrated living, to use Pope Francis's phrase. Um, as we go, they go. Or as they go, we go. That there are connections here that with choices we make as congregations, choices we make as congregational leaders, choices that communities make, all of these affect each other. And, and maybe what it means to be a leader in a community, uh, maybe what it means for a congregation to be a leader in a community is to recognize that great responsibility and the beauty and the grace of that, right? That as we love, we teach our community how to love. Um, and, and in that love, we hope they experience Jesus the way we have. I think that's a great place to sign off this episode from. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank y'all for having me. This has been delightful. Yeah. Ethan, you want to sign us off? Sure. Friends, this has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, joined by Tom, and we will see you next time. Joe's going to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'll be like, well, <laughs> <laughs>